the persistence of ruin and the upon all their tomorrows drawings really use a lot more sort of concrete references to the stuff that I saw in Cambodia when I was there. And I went to Angkor Wat Archaeological Park and drew there for two weeks and also travels to Indonesia. And I went to Bali and, and Java and did a lot of drawings of their ruins and their temples there and took lots of photographs. And so those also are me trying to to pull together the architectural ruin the thing that's going again out of its initial phase of life into something else, but then also referencing the idea that things are growing at the same time. Maybe not what we intended, you know, like when, when an old mall or something gets abandoned and it's overgrown with grass and, you know, a skylight breaks and all of a sudden you have a tree growing in the middle of this 1980s piece of architecture. And so that sort of in-between state, I was trying to reference it in a different way with the, like the persistence of ruin in particular. And that fogginess that you're seeing is layers of plexiglass and duralar that are creating that sort of atmospheric perspective. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 244th episode, I'm super excited to be joined by Doug Russell for our very first podcast of 2021. Doug is currently living and working in Laramie, Wyoming, where he is a professor of art at the University of Wyoming. We talk about his amazing drawings that explore nature as well as ruin and the history of places. We talk about his time living in Turkey and, of course, the huge variety of countries that he travels to, Cambodia, Peru, you name it. It's pretty much he's been there. So we talk all about these experiences, how they can come together to explore different ideas of decay, of renewal. And we talk all about that, of course. But be sure to check out his work at RussellFineArt.com. There's tons of drawings there as well as some of his recordings that you can find on SoundCloud and, of course, Social media stuff can be found there. Be sure to follow him on Instagram as there's plenty of new work. That's Doug Russell Art. If you're checking out Studio Break for the first time, head on over to studiobreak.com. We've got a bunch of interviews up there, each of which have images of the artist's artwork, links to their websites, and you can listen right there on studiobreak.com or just subscribe to the podcast. And you've always got a studio companion and good thoughts to listen to while you're working away in the studio. So be sure and check out some of those interviews there. Wouldn't you know, we are on social media, so be sure to like our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter at Studio Break, and of course, be sure to follow on Studio underscore Break. If you'd like to see my work, it's davidlinaway.com, and of course, on Twitter and Instagram at davidlinaway. And with those announcements out of the way, let's dive right into our interview with Doug Russell. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Doug Russell. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Well, it's great to have you on. I know that we met years ago as I was a guest at the University of Wyoming in Laramie, where I was able to do a lecture and some critiques, and that's where you teach, where our mutual colleagues, Diana and Shelby, teach. I became familiar with your uh, fantastic drawings and, and your work, so it's great to finally have you on here. It's good to be with you. Well, I like to start out at the beginning, and as I was explaining to you, I kind of do some detective work a little bit, combing through uh, CVs and stuff like that. I'm I'm curious where you're from, and I'm going to try to guess Missouri and hope that's the case, but we'll see. Yep, you're close. That's where I did my undergrad. So I did four years, and then I stayed on a few years in Columbia, Missouri there, but I was actually 
born in Wisconsin and lived there until I was 10. And then we moved to South Dakota and then we moved down to Iowa. And that's where I finished up in high school before heading down to Missouri. So at least a, a Midwesterner through and through, I guess. Very Midwestern all the way through. Right on, right on. And, you know, I'm always curious, the uh, initial starts that, that folks have in terms of coming to art, were you, you know, a kid that was drawing and, and starting at a really young age? Because, again, obviously, to kind of see how prolific you are and, you know, all the work that you have. And the website is russellfineart.com. So go check it out. There's plenty to look at. But were you always somebody that was making a lot of work and drawing when you were a kid? Yeah, it's it's the classic story, and it's the worst artist statement in the world where I <laughs> was drawing before I can remember, and ever since then, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I just naturally was interested in drawing. I mean, I think all kids are. I had a mother who encouraged that and, you know, bought me tons of cheap paper. And the funny thing was like, you know, we go out to eat at some chain restaurant and they turn over the paper placemat and give me a ballpoint pen. And so, yeah, it's always been part of my life and I was always doing it, though I don't really think I thought of myself as an artist exactly until probably like junior high and high school is when I started to think that that was something I could actually do. But certainly it goes way back, the the practice of it and the process of it. And was your family kind of encouraging of that in terms of, you know, seeing that or do they want you to, you know, play golf or sorry, <laughs> I don't know what a good, yep. good Midwestern sport is, I should say. <laughs> yeah. The interesting thing was my, my mother was a, a professor of child development. And so she definitely saw like if I was doing something that I was interested in, she wanted to encourage that. My father was encouraging of it, but he was far more practical. And I always joke that it wasn't until I, you know, really, really got into teaching and got a full-time job that he was like, oh yeah, this makes sense. <laughs> I'm like, good. Yeah, no. And now he's completely supportive, which is very sweet. But he had the more practical side of things. And this is something else that sort of rolls into it is that even up until I graduated from high school, I was going to probably be like a chemical engineer or I was going to go into architecture or I was going to go into physics. And it wasn't until I graduated from high school that I sort of made that big leap. And I was like, no, I'm going to go in the art direction. I had support um, from everybody, but it was also sort of sort of unexpected for me because I was always hanging out with all the other people who were going to go in the other direction in terms of the sciences. Mm -hmm. So, and that folds into the content later that we can talk about with my work too. Like why all that stuff still kind of like bounces around in my head. Was there something in particular? I mean, I would imagine maybe you took some art classes in high school, but was there like a particular experience or anything that was like, Oh man, I'm going to forget architecture. Well, going back to the architecture, the main thing was that my dad was a hospital administrator. And in the process of doing that job, you have to build lots of hospitals because they're always growing and adding beds and facilities. And so with that, I got, got to meet several architects and I would walk around the buildings being constructed. And so I was pretty obsessed with that, you know, probably like grade school to junior high and into high school, like that sort of view of things. And then, so I met several architects at that time. Um, but the thing that really pulled me over into the fine arts and being more of my own individually creative person was I had an absolutely fantastic art teacher in junior high and high school. When it, This is when we moved to Iowa. And I think she was fresh out of graduate school or pretty close to that. And so she had a lot of energy and she was really excited. And I think she was excited to have a student who was excited. And I'd had her for six years, you know, all the way through. And she's the one who convinced me that I was 
good enough to go to you know college in this and like you don't have to do that other stuff if you don't want to and i was like really <laughs> and she said yep and i was like okay and so you know i talked to her with my mother and my parents were divorced by that point so i talked to her with her and i was just like this is what i want to do and she said i think that's fine so that's how i sort of moved in that direction but there's a lot of support. And then, of course, the classic sort of high school experiences that I did all the backdrops for all the plays. And I sure. you know, I was the guy to go to for the cartoons and the yearbook and the whatever and the newspaper and all that stuff. So that was sort of a typical story there, too. And so was there any kind of decision that led you to uh, Columbia College? That's where my mother went to school years <laughs> and years ago. And one of the little things that gets you to go someplace is that they had an alumni scholarship. Oh, nice. So along with the other scholarships I got for academics and art department scholarships and things like that, there was a heavy chunk of tuition that was waived because I was coming back to where she had gone to school. So, And she also loved Columbia, so she always talked it up. And I thought, well, that sounds lovely. Well, and I would imagine, unlike you know most of the people that I interview who and I could be wrong about this, uh, don't necessarily love those initial foundation level courses. I would imagine just based on your work that you were kind of all about it unless, you know, you had like a super (laughs) abstract, heavy, uh, professor or something, but yeah, I love, I love the drawing classes. Of course, the, one of the weird things and I always tell my students about this is that they looked at my portfolio coming out of high school and they said, well, you can skip over 2d design. We'll just move you up into painting. And that was, that was a fine decision for them to make. That's fine. But I ended up buying the 2D design book like a summer later <laughs> because <laughs> I felt like every problem I was having in painting was not a painting problem. It was composition and it was design. And so that's my little pep talk for foundation students that I may have now. Like, sure. as, they, as they complain about 2D design, I'm like, no, every problem you're really going to have, it's going to come from not paying attention to right now, I think. Yeah. I mean, again, I know from personal experience, I was kind of like the worst student to start with. And I feel like I spent most of my young life uh, learning the stuff that I didn't learn, you know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And also, you know, as part of teaching is that you get to meet yourself all over again. You're like, oh, (laughs) I know you. Right. (laughs) I, I know that attitude. So, yeah, that happens too often. All right on. Well, and so were you initially like a a painter then or because I noticed that you also, you know, studied eventually printmaking as well. Was that something that crept in there? Yeah. So the the process sort of was that all through high school, I just basically drew. I did other things and whatever was coming up on the roster in the the art classes, I, I tried it. But mostly and for the most part, I always loved to draw. That was sort of my first love. When I got to undergrad, initially I was going to go into medical illustration, uh, which makes sense because that sort of ties together the science and the art. But to be honest, as soon as I saw the people who were pursuing the BFA in painting, I just thought, no, no, that's what I want to do right there. And so within like a semester, I had switched out of doing medical illustration and just moved over on a BFA painting track. Sure. And it's because paint's romantic and it has that long history to it. So my BFA is in painting with a minor in drawing, but Mm -hmm. the love of drawing was still the main thing. And I paint like a drawer. I joke with some of our painters here that all the squishiness of that stuff, it just bothers me. You can't get a nice clean line, you know, and they're, and they're like, no, 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 you can get a nice edge. And I'm like, edge, edge. (laughs) I want a line with a pencil. So I learned from my undergrad degree that I'm 
good at painting, but I'm better at drawing. Well, and that kind of precision, like you're talking about, is is kind of different. And obviously, the the procedure again, I, it's always interesting for me to think about the way that artists think about drawing because I maybe talk to. I don't know, a good half of people that don't do any kind of drawing, you know, in terms of their studio practice. So it's interesting to think about that. And as somebody that I think of as getting better at drawing myself, <laughs> like I've, I've learned that it's a, a totally different skill set, you know, mm-hmm. in some in some regards. So it's very challenging. And I guess, you know, to think about this relative to your undergraduate work then. So what what did it look like? Did it look like anything similar to what you're doing now in terms of like the distress, like kind of I'm going to stop guessing and let you tell me (laughs) (laughs) that makes sense the the through lines and the similarity between what i was doing way back in undergrad and now is architecture i was doing a lot of drawing and painting outside of sort of like the neighborhoods and the alleys and various things like that i was also in a pleasantly cliched way obsessed with abstract expressionism for a year or two Mm -hmm. and i made a lot of bad de koonings and a lot of bad pollocks but the similarity there between what I did in undergrad and now is sort of a interest in an all over compositional approach and trusting in if I do improvised work now, it's usually the gestural underpinnings for a composition. And that starts off in a very classic abstract expressionist way of feeling my way into the composition. And so I did a lot of that as an undergrad, just sort of like loosely playing with paint and building compositions in an improvised manner where they sort of like like automatic writing and they sort of happen naturally. And then there's always been sort of an interest in structure and pattern, not necessarily man-made pattern, but like natural pattern and texture. And that was present way back in my undergrad. So my thesis work for my BFA show was or at least leading up to that, was like some large four foot by four foot panels that were oil. They took their inspiration from natural forms like rocks and grass and things like that. But then I threw in a little bit of the Anselm Kiefer influence and mixed in sands and glued pebbles and stones and rocks and straw and grass and stuff into it also. So they had sort of a expressionistic quality, abstract, but also rooted in that kind of naturalism. So all of that was in there. I don't even know if I have any images left of any of that stuff. If they are, they're on really badly taken slides somewhere. But that is one of the through lines that I can see now looking backwards is sort of the interest in structure and architecture, but also so man-made and natural structure mm-hmm. maybe is a way to put it. Um, but then layers and textures and trying to like move the composition away from being about one central thing and having it sort of fill up that space a little bit more like a abstract expressionist sort of approach. But, you know, to kind of think about kind of moving forward from that. So did you wind up taking time off or did you go straight to graduate school or? I, I wasn't going to take time off, but the first two times I tried to apply to graduate school, I didn't get in. Now I wasn't catching, you casting a very wide net. I was being pretty stupid about, you know, just like two or three places, mm-hmm. but you know, the work was probably fine that I was doing, but I wasn't, you know, presenting myself very professionally. One of the slides I remember of one of my paintings is it's just leaning up against my car. <laughs> and you know how you used to be able to like mask out the, the other things? I never did that. So you still see it on my car. When right. I, so yeah, it's no wonder I didn't get in. <laughs> so I took a, about a year and a half or two years off between undergrad and graduate school. And a friend of mine and I 
we're in a similar time frame. So we were thinking like, you know, maybe we should just go somewhere. And so in a similar way to my mother talking up Columbia, Missouri, we had a professor who talked up Iowa City up in Iowa. And he just said, the place is like a castle. You're going to love it. It's got a river. You, you should just go. And I'm like, that's all I need. So I just went with my friend. We moved up there. And he started taking classes in the College of Education because he's thinking about going that direction. And then I, well, to put it bluntly, the Iowa painting program had rejected me. So I didn't go to them. But there was a logic to printmaking, right? So I'm, I love drawing. If I'm going to get a graduate degree, why not get it in something where I learn the skills that sort of extend out from the process of drawing? And, you know, not in a practical, how do I get a job way, but more of like, what's the natural next thing after drawing? And a lot of that can go into printmaking. So I moved up to Iowa City, started working up there and got residency in the state and everything. And Eventually, I started taking classes at Iowa in their printmaking program as a non-degree sneaking graduate student. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of places have that. You can take like six or nine hours before you have to be accepted. So I did that, and I started – I took like six credit hours simultaneously, and I was working nearly full-time. And I created a portfolio, which I used to apply into the program. Then I was accepted for the next fall into their MFA and printmaking program. Um, the irony here in the joke and the lesson for students is that I hated my undergraduate printmaking class and I dropped it. <laughs> so so I, I just absolutely could not get along with it mm -hmm. at, at that time. And I just thought, yeah, I don't need this. And I didn't need the credits. So that was the first time I'd really, I, so I learned intaglio, copper plate intaglio on the fly that spring semester up at Iowa and then applied into the program for the fall. Well, and it strikes me that it would be kind of fitting your nature, you know, kind of re reviewing the drawings. I mean, they're so detail oriented. So you think about, or at least stories I remember of professors that, that we had where, you know, you'd go to a conference and they're like etching or working on a plate or scraping away at it in like a hotel room uh, during a conference and stuff like that. So I would imagine the detail aspect of it would be something that would be really appealing. Yeah. Yeah. The precision, the, the clarity of the line, if you etch it, but also the drawerly quality of like doing a dry point. There are several of us in graduate school together who sort of ended up having a subgroup of people who drew and made prints together. And so we would have drawing sessions and life drawing session and landscape sessions where we would take copper plate. We would have our dry point needle and then we cut the ink with half and half with Vaseline. And we called it Vaselink. And we used the Vaselink to rub the plate so that we could see what we were drawing. And that way, it would never dry. That's the Vaseline's in there. Um, but you could see what you were drawing on the copper plate in real time and use the copper plate as a sketch pad. And then, of course, you know, you'd clean it off and everything and then print it up with real ink. But there was both the precision, but also that sort of gestural immediacy that you could get with printmaking if you did it a certain way, which is kind of nice. And then you'd get the repeatability of course, of doing different states or uh, additions and stuff. Sure, sure. Well, and I would imagine, you know, just like a, any kind of graduate program, it, it's kind of like, it's a pressure cooker, you know? I mean, like very literally, you're all kind of getting competitive. You're, you know, visiting each other's studios and, and, and working. Um, what kind of stuff were you making during these years? So in graduate school, I mean, I started off pretty straightforward with the etchings, and they were mostly, again, architectural, pretty just observational in that way. And I think I was mostly trying to figure out the techniques and the uh, mechanisms of printmaking at that time. Mm -hmm. And that's also my minor in graduate school is also drawing. So I was doing a lot of work in the drawing and painting department. 
but eventually what kind of came out of the graduate school bodies of work, the biggest bodies of work that I did were actually ended up being monotype. So I still would move things over into additionable states and do aquatints and, and etchings and things like that of some of these compositions. But a lot of what I did was just straight up monotype and not even monoprint. Like there would be nothing on the plate at all. And I would put the ink down and roll out the ink and then I would manipulate it. And there's like a whole series of landscapes that I did that were sort of like fuzzy Polaroids. Um, and they were about the size of a Polaroid. Mm -hmm. And I would pull like 20 to 30 of them in a day. So I would just keep trying to improvise landscapes and they're all sort of remembered landscapes. And so they had sort of a, a fuzzy out of focus quality to them. And I would use like my hands or dry brushes and Q-tips and all kinds of things to create sort of evocative memory-based landscape at that time. And all of that started because an incredible artist, Michael Mazur, came to do a demonstration on monotype and he did massive, like, you know, six foot long monotypes on these huge presses and out of that experience sort of got me really interested in building monotypes in that way and then in graduate school i also was had the opportunity to go to venice for a summer in 1995 and then again in 1996 and work at a, a printmaking school over there in conjunction with iowa and so going to venice being there for the summer doing printmaking there and being in that sort of rich art, artistic and architectural uh, environment that sort of jump-started a whole other thing that was about on location drawing doing prints you know from those sorts of observations and then also getting really interested in living abroad which comes up later in my life so that was sort of the the start of it in graduate school yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, going through your website, the travel drawings, you know, essentially go back to to this time, essentially. Mm -hmm. And I, I would imagine, you know, since all these different places have different uh, histories and and monuments and stuff like that, I'm, I could easily see how that maybe ties into everything that you're interested in. And I guess one thing that we we haven't talked to, and I know we'll come back to this, uh, or you might <laughs> respond to that a little bit too. I'm curious, you know, were there any kind of artists or, you know, writers or anything in particular that you were kind of looking at or kind of using to kind of not influence your work, but, you know, I know that as an undergraduate and a graduate student, things, things shift, things change. You get exposed mm -hmm. to new artists and thinking about things in different ways, you know? sort of the simpler answer i mean and i think you sort of allude to the complexity of it so there's like a million people i could come up with and <laughs> a million different tangents and directions and i can see the influences but other people are like well, how is that even possible and I'm like no 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 really really you can see miley cyrus in there it's it's right in that, ne never mind never mind right. um, my undergrad was very strongly rooted in the romantic so you know romantic painters of the 19th century into sort of a, even like a symbolism quality of, and, and then eventually not literally into like surrealism of Dali kind of surrealism, but the surrealism that leads to abstract expressionism and automatic writing and trusting and that sort of thing. So there's sort of a bridge there from the romantics as opposed to the classicists, the neoclassicists in my mind. And so that sort of Delacroix quality of gesture and mark making and looseness. And there's a quality going way back there with just the, I'm thinking of like some of the paintings I did that were trying to evoke things that I had seen in art history. So like 
dusk landscapes, Albert Pinkham Ryder, that sort of murky, well, and it's also moody and adolescent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all of that stuff is in there, right? So that I just completely glommed onto that and rode that wave. But inside of that, and the romantic thing still comes out now. I mean, that it's an obvious pull for me towards the idea of travel and towards the idea of especially looking at architecture from other cultures or from historical ruins and things like that, that has a very strong uh, romantic bent to it. But inside of that, uh, especially when I got to graduate school, there were other influences that moved on Piranesi being probably the strongest um, in terms of, again, architecture, ruins, but also etchings and engravings and all of that sort of thing. So those are all in there as major influences. There's a lot more and I can think of. I mean, we talked a little bit about the abstract expressionist compositional aesthetic, but I think that there's that romantic view of things is at the core of a lot of stuff I do, even if now I can be awfully neoclassic in my precision and my edges and my line and even some of my composition. There's still like a quality of Rembrandt all the way up through Delacroix, all the way up through de Kooning that sort of feels like more of my lineage, even if the work doesn't necessarily look that way. Well, and to think about that relative to the time, then what did, what did you leave there in terms of your thesis with, or, or what did you focus on? Right. So the graduate school work was primarily the thesis work was responses to Venice. So they were sort of simplified elemental versions of like the the walls of Venice that were sort of falling apart with stairs leading into water and doors and um, passages. So there's a lot of, I mean, I think, again, a lot of my work has to do with where I am in my life, and I think that's pretty common. So I was moving through passages and through gateways and through doors, and, you know, that sort of journey aspect of it showed up a lot in those responses to the Venetian sort of influences. And they were mostly etchings, uh, line and aquatip. And I'm curious, you know, this might be something that even relates now. You know, I rely heavily on photographs and I'm just wondering if you're just sketching everything and then kind of making a composite to kind of inform the types of things that you like to do. It's been sort of a blend. I mean, a lot of things that I have been doing are on location. So I do a lot of on location drawing, especially when I'm traveling. Going back to Venice, I also was taking a lot of photographs, but I was also drawing in in the location that I was I was working. So there's a little bit of back and forth there. Obviously everything tripped over and got a hell of a lot easier when we got digital technology. So mm-hmm. sure. you know you, you kind of had to monitor how many photographs you could afford to take back in the day. And you know, you had to get them all developed just to see what they look like. Even when I was living in Turkey after graduate school, I was still just taking photographs of everything. And I would work from them and other sources. So it's always sort of been a combination. What I'm finding now with the pandemic, I wasn't able to travel this year that I like normally would. So what I'm finding myself doing more of now is actually working from photographic reference. But a lot of the stuff that we'll talk about in terms of my large architectural sort of compositions those come from a lot of photographs I've done while I'm traveling. And then I use that usually about a month of inspiration. And I come back from, like, I think from sabbatical when I was in Cambodia and Turkey, oh, I think I took like 7,000 photos mm-hmm. <laughs> and then went through all of them. I didn't catalog all of them. 
though other people would expect me to. But I didn't, I was, you know, I kind of like pulled out the few hundred that actually were good and worthwhile. And those became sort of the basis for a lot of the other work that I did in those drawings. Well, so we were just talking about some various uh, travel experiences and, and things like that, wrapping up your thesis exhibition. What happened after that? Because, you know, like pretty much everybody I know that was like, oh, we got to get a job, got to figure out what to do. Uh, did you travel? What what happened after after that experience? Yeah, so immediately after graduating with my MFA, I did apply for a few places, but sort of like when I got out of undergrad, I think that they knew that I wasn't quite ready for prime time. <laughs> and so I didn't get any jobs right out of the gate. I ended up just working in Iowa City at a cabinet shop, just making money and, and making stuff, which is good. And then, very long story short, uh, I had some connections to Turkey. A couple of friends of mine had moved over there and they were just saying how fantastic it was and how fun it was. And so I just figured out how to get my butt over there. I ended up getting a certificate to teach English, but also when I got over there to Turkey, I taught both English as a foreign language to the Turks in the College of Education, but I also taught in the art department in Turkish. Mm-hmm in the College of Education there for future high school art teachers. And I taught through an interpreter at first until I realized that I was understanding what I should say better than he was translating what I was saying. So (laughs) that was fun. But he was great. And then that experience being over in Turkey for two years probably is beyond graduate school. is probably the most transformative experience for my life in terms of creativity, but also just my view of the world. You know, in Turkey, there's ancient, there's Greek, there's Roman, there's Ottoman, there's Republic of Turkey stuff, like all layered on top of itself. And I had seen things in Italy, but not to the level and to the sense of foreignness, because, I mean, I was living in Asia and that across the, the border from, you know, on the other side of Istanbul, I was in Bursa. And, you know, I'm in a different culture that has a completely different background. And the complexity and the density of that was really intriguing to me. And so like the work I was doing over there started off in drawing. In graduate school, I'd also been doing a lot of drawing on gesso paper with charcoal and watered down and washes. And then I would sand back through the charcoal to get the paper texture and the texture of the gesso. And so I did a lot of that sort of work also in Turkey to kind of deal with the layers of history that were going on there. And then uh, my friend and I also started to do a lot of collages with acrylic paint and transparent acrylics and sanding back through all of those layers and that kind of stuff too. It was all an attempt to try and capture that feeling of depth and history and things being concealed and revealed and unearthed and reburied. So there's that was probably one of the biggest shifts conceptually I've had in my life. And that really became the foundation for a lot of other work that I did. Yeah. And obviously, as I've alluded to before, I mean, there's so much on your, your site. So, you know, you can see that kind of explored in a, a variety of different circumstances, different ways. And, you know, I'm sure just like any, anybody else, you know, one series leads into, you know, some other idea that's going to, you know, shift it slightly or maybe go in a totally different direction. Maybe again, just talk a little bit about some of those explorations or if there's anything that you want to highlight in between, you know, again, there's a lot of time, you know, passing through there, but you kind of made a note earlier, you know, relative to kind of moving in that. So did you wind up like moving after this experience and then that transitions into new work and, and new ways of working? 
Yeah, so I was in Turkey for a couple of years, and then I came back to the United States. Again, there's I had another friend who was living in Kansas City, or he just would move there. And I kind of needed a landing spot to come back into the country and get sort of my life rebuilt. Because if you've noticed, there's, there's a trend here in that I do something, and then I make no plans for what the next step is going to be. <laughs> and then I kind of wallow around for a few years. And so I needed a, I, I knew by this point, at least not having a plan, at least I needed a place to land. And so that's how uh, Kansas City ended up providing me. And I think in a lot of ways, the experience of living in Turkey was just really, it was both transformative, but it was also sort of like pushed me way over into a different mindset. And I kind of needed to get my feet back underneath me in my own country. I remember walking into a, I don't know, a liquor store or a grocery store for the first time after getting back in the United States. And it's just like, this place is insanely bright <laughs> and there's a lot of products and there's a lot of color. And it was just, I was overwhelmed. <laughs> And so in Kansas City, I, I started to do some work initially, but after a few months or maybe a year, maybe less than that, I don't know, somewhere in there, I actually just stopped making work. And in that sort of way that this becomes an interesting discussion with students, I was scared to death to do that, to kind of let it go for a while because I thought, oh, that means I'll never pick it up again. And that's, of course, you know, not trusting yourself. Mm -hmm. And the reason I had stopped making work was because I just didn't have anything I wanted to say. And I was working at a pretty heavy eight to five job, which had very little to do with actual making art. And, you know, I wasn't making a ton of money. So I just did that. And so for a couple of years, I didn't really do anything but work eight to five, ride my bicycle a lot and drink some beer. Mm-hmm. and just relaxed. And it was actually a really good thing because then out of that, there was a very natural inclination to make again. You know, I got anxious, in, not in a bad way, but I just had that energy. It was like, uh, I need to do something here. And so I started off just making almost color field or texture field paintings that were just all physical texture, almost like stucco, acrylic paint. And it had the influence of the collage work, but having removed any of the content. So it was just texture. And then slowly in that sort of open color space and texture space, I started to reintroduce content into those fields. And then eventually by the time I left Kansas City, they were very sort of solid structural improvisations and responses to the architectural environment of Kansas City, mm-hmm. but very flat. So if there was perspective, it was all you know, brought back to a very flat plane of texture and color shape. And they were also, when I say color, I mean minimal Doug color. I mean, <laughs> browns, <laughs> beiges, right. you know, grays, that's color for me. But, you know, they have that quality of the landscapes of graduate school, but run through sort of a abstract architectural filter. But they use the layering of the stuff that I was doing in Turkey, if that makes sense. And that's kind of where I was by the end of uh, my time in Kansas City and when I applied for my job out here in, in Laramie at the University of Wyoming. Like I said, there's so much to talk about and unpack in, in terms of your work. And we've talked about some of the themes and, and interests that you kind of have. And I guess to kind of you know think about it in a practical time sense, you know, what are the, I guess, handful of things that you feel kind of, you know, are cir- circular or cyclical is maybe a better word, you know, relative to the work, things that you come back to. And then maybe we can talk about some of these more recent series. One of the main things, and, it, and this is also the advantage of being at the point that I'm at, that I can look back over my 
work in my career and it begins to sort of make 2020 hindsight sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is not to say that I had any idea what this stuff was actually doing when I was doing it. And it feels that way even now when I'm making new work. And I know we all know that feeling. But looking back, I think that the the commonalities have tended to be an interest in like complexity, structure, layers of things, like I said, being concealed and revealed and buried and refound and that sort of thing. There's also just a, a real interest in the idea of fragments of things or things being worn down over time. I often talk a lot about how a brand new thing or like a brand new piece of architecture is not as interesting to me as the thing that's been worn down or has served its purpose. And now we're using it for a different purpose. And there's obviously something interesting about brokenness and fragmentation versus something that's new and perfect. Because obviously the new and perfect only lasts for so long. And then there's this first dent in your car. There's the first, you know, scratch on your bicycle mm -hmm. or whatever it is, gouge in your nice new piece of furniture. And as soon as that happens, then it's taken off of that pedestal of being perfect. And it becomes more real at that point. And I always make a joke with my students when I'm introducing my work on the first day of class that, you know, perfect people are annoying. <laughs> Broken people make the great stories of our time. And it's always the things that are imperfect that we love in each other and that we find interesting. And so that also ties all the way back, though, for me to my undergraduate interest in the romantics. And that sort of lack of precision and perfection, but an interest in the natural, in the ephemeral, and all those other sort of buzzwords of graduate school. But the liminal mm -hmm. is in there too, <laughs> of course. It's, I mean, how can it not be? That sort of quality of things that are in process and moving from one thing to another and from one purpose to another, that's always sort of been there. And it's either literal, like I build something up and then I sand back down through it with a power sander, or I make layers on Duralar or Mylar, and then I cover it up with another layer, and then I obscure something, and then I cut back through it to reveal it again. Or it's just in the depiction of a ruin, or a broken branch, or something that was one thing, but now it's another thing. So that's all sort of wrapped up in there. And it makes a lot more sense now as I'm talking about it, even than it did yesterday. One of the things that you know, you said, or at least talked about, you kind of talked about this passage of time idea, and that's something that I think is really kind of apparent in the work. And again, I'm thinking about it relative to, you know, the way that you plan and kind of work through things. Is there like a particular setup or how, how does it work where you decide to kind of go in a different direction or a new series or, you know, decide something is going to be, you know, worthwhile exploring? And I'm noticing that there's a number of bodies of work that also kind of cross over time-wise. Yeah. And that's something I was thinking about earlier was the thing that printmaking gave me was the idea that you work on multiple things at the same time. When I was an undergrad, I would work on one painting until I killed it. Mm -hmm. And the, the joke in the critiques was that I liked the painting three paintings ago on that <laughs> same canvas. And I go, I did too. I liked that one a lot. And they're like, yeah, I wish I could still see that. Right. And so print, <laughs> printmaking allows, allowed me to work on a matrix, right? And then pull off and, and literally document what happened before I screwed it up. Or it went in a direction that was so completely different that you lost that freshness that was in the earlier state. But also in printmaking, I mean, you can't just sit there and look at the acid bath and do nothing else while you're waiting for the plate to etch. Mm -hmm. 
in that moment, you are getting another plate or you are preparing this paper or you are doing something else, right? And so the idea that you have multiple irons in the fire, that was a transformative epiphany for me. And I'm sure it's like everybody else is like, yeah, of course. And I'm like, well, I didn't know that before then. <laughs> and then now, you know, you'll see a lot of my drawing series tend to be like eight pieces or 10 pieces or 15 pieces or something. And usually if I have the space for it, I have at least six or seven of those going simultaneously. So, you know, these days in COVID land, when I'm working in my dining room, mm -hmm. that doesn't happen. It's a different process completely these days. I do one thing at a time because that's all I have space for. But in my studio, normally when I'm in the mood and things are moving and I have the time, I'll have like several pieces going at the same time. And then another sort of like, I don't know if it's a piece of wisdom, but another thought I have that I always give to my students is there's the idea you have and that you're working on that thing for me, that drawing. And then you think, well, I could do this to it. And is that better or different? Mm -hmm. <laughs> is it going to make it better or is that just going to be a different thing? And then I'll usually sit on that for a while. And then if it's going to make it too different, that becomes a new drawing. That idea becomes a new drawing. And sometimes that's the start of that new series that you see overlapping because the other series doesn't want that added to it yet. It wants to finish the conversation it started, but the new idea is also valid. It just doesn't need to be in that piece that I was working on before. And that's how I solved my undergraduate problem of 10 great paintings buried underneath a really crappy painting mm -hmm. <laughs> is to like separate them out into individual pieces and series and in that way so you know you know i could add a giraffe yes yes <laughs> you could but that doesn't make it better it just makes it different now it's a architectural drawing with a giraffe in it and you're like oh yeah yeah i see that and so then there's the giraffe series starts after that <laughs> so to kind of think about this maybe between two bodies of work uh, you know you have a series uh, upon all their tomorrows and I'm specifically looking at this uh, number 14, which you probably are like, I know exactly what that one is. I've got this all cataloged in my head. Yeah. But it's kind of like this, you know, pile of ruins on a, on a pile of vines. And, you know, as I'm looking at it relative to some other series, you know, I start thinking about how, you know, they start to become interrelated, you know, even like the houseplant yeah. series incorporate those vines or, you know, mm -hmm. mushrooms in some cases, or it just takes on, like you're saying, maybe it sounds like it needs to be a new you know, drawing. So when I compare that to say like the persistence of ruin where mm -hmm. you've got like this really foggy, almost atmospheric kind of background where you kind of separate these really, you know, emphasized fragments of, of building ruins, you know, it just kind of shifts it in a new direction. Mm -hmm. And so again, it, it kind of really makes sense to me to, to kind of think about how you might be maybe working on, you know, some of these things, you know, crossover or, you know, maybe like five easels set up in the, in the studio as you're working. Yep. And then the, upon all their tomorrow's drawing that you referenced, you know, I let that one slide into the old, you know, into that body of work because mm -hmm. I was like, eh, it's more of that than this. But then obviously the organic stuff was creeping back in. And then, like you said, in the persistence of ruin, the organic stuff becomes more solidly consistent as you kind of move through that series. It's not in all of them, but there's an interest in the organic and the persistence of ruin and the upon all their tomorrow's drawings really use a lot more sort of concrete references to the stuff that I saw in Cambodia when I was there. And I went to Angkor Wat Archaeological Park and drew there for two weeks and also travels to Indonesia. And I went to Bali and, and Java 
and did a lot of drawings of their ruins and their temples there and took lots of photographs. And so those also are me trying to, to pull together the architectural ruin, the thing that's going again out of its initial phase of life into something else, but then also referencing the idea that things are growing at the same time. Maybe not what we intended, you know, like when, when an old mall or something gets abandoned and it's overgrown with grass and, you know, a skylight breaks and all of a sudden you have a tree growing in the middle of this 1980s piece of architecture. And so that sort of in-between state, I was trying to reference it in a different way with the, like the persistence of ruin in particular. And that fogginess that you're seeing is layers of plexiglass and duralar that are creating that sort of atmospheric perspective. And I guess I'm just kind of curious, you know, to think about the way that you're composing these, because, you know, if you go through the, the travel drawings, it's like a log of years and years and years of these small observations, you know, obviously from traveling. I could imagine, you know, as you're seeing some of them, there's like fragments of buildings and, and things that definitely going to arrive in the work or, you know, a series of like uh, plant drawings. So maybe those are all kind of things that kind of, you know, build up your vocabulary a little, a little bit. But I mean... Like, how much is planned out? How much is improvised when you start working through, you know, like these recent series that we were just talking about? Upon All Their Tomorrows and the series before that, Ebb and Flow drawings that I did before then, mm -hmm. those are all on large pieces of mylar, well, 40 inches by 25 inches or 40 inches by like 60 some inches. And those are usually begun in a an intuitive abstract expressionist automatic gestural sort of process of just laying down compositional movement. Mm -hmm. And then in the ebb and flow series, I invented architectural forms out of my head in sort of an impromptu sort of jazz-like way. So I continued that abstract expressionist compositional approach with then an intuitive creation or um, imagining of architectural form. So they reference things that I remember, but I'm not looking at anything. And then in the following architectural series, everything is based upon something that I've either drawn or taken a photograph of. So there's a literalness that comes into those uh, later drawings of architecture. Well, one of the reasons I like working in the Duralar for those drawings is you can erase it completely. You know, for people who've worked on it, you know that you can lay down like a graphite line or a colored pencil line or any sort of mark like that, and even ink. And either with an eraser or with alcohol, you can just completely take it back off. So the drawing itself embodies the same process as what I'm trying to describe, which is I draw things, I build them, and then I erase them and I build something else in that same place if I don't like it. And so it's related to that time reference you had. It's a, it's a process of trial and error, of improvised laying in a compositional element and then living with it for a while and then either keeping it or drawing over it or erasing part of it or erasing all of it. And so that it has, again, that thing that I'm sort of obsessed with from de Kooning was the living surface that's finding its place instead of just having a linear process of knowing where it's going to end up at. So we've talked a little bit about the way that the compositions get formed. And I guess I'm just kind of curious from like a, you know, studio perspective, like a routine, what is that like? Because, you know, I'd imagine if you're doing a travel drawing, sure, that's like a, a sitting maybe, but if you are, you know, doing a, a 40 by 60 inch drawing, super detail oriented, you see all these lines and kind of work throughs for them. I mean, in terms of like a timeline, what's the process like that? And I mean, are you just showing up at, 
you know, four in the morning every day, leaving at four <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> yeah. That, that would um, work. <laughs> well, being, yeah, that would actually be kind of fun. <laughs> being, you know, professor and, and teaching full time and having all kinds of other duties, I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that I tend to get my work done in between everything else. Mm-hmm. So my goal, uh, which of course didn't work during COVID land these days at all this year, but my goal is usually like when spring semester is up, you know, I try to travel initially there for the beginning of that spring and summer, but then I'm in my studio over the summer as much as I can so that I have a body of work at least solidly started. So then in between classes, I can be sort of finagling them or if I'm waiting for a student to come into office hours or something like that. Wyoming is you may remember we have the benefit of having like our studios and our offices and everything in the building with the students. And so they can come find us in our studios while we're working. And so that helps a great deal. So in terms of like, you know, the classic, how long did it take you? My travel drawings, I can tell you like on the, on what ideal amount of time is that one of those travel drawings takes an hour. I try to get them knocked out and fresh and, and so I'm still enjoying the process, but some of the travel drawings, or like four or five hours long. And I liked the drawing in the end, but I hated that process because it was laborious. <laughs> but for the studio work, the best way to describe it is they tend to take six to 12 months of sort of percolation. There's a lot of time that, you know, in between classes, I'll just sit in the studio and just stare at the things. And especially if I have like six drawings going, I'll just stare at them and maybe make some mental or physical notes on like what I need to do when I really have the time to be in there. So there's a lot of sitting that happens these days with the work. And then for like the persistence of ruin, again, those are on layers of mylar in between plexiglass inside of a frame and each one is 17 inches by 11 inches. And for that, I did multiple different drawings on that 17 by 11 format. And then I started to shuffle them back and forth to find out what would go on top of or underneath other things. So if you look at those compositions, they're not settled. Like what you see in the end is not necessarily what I pictured. I would do like a foreground. Well, what would end up being a foreground, I would just do that. And then I would do like several different things. And then I would put things behind like a layer of mylar or two layers of mylar. I'd put it like two layers of plexiglass down. And some of those pieces have four or five layers of mylar and plexiglass to kind of push that stuff back into space. But, and I've, honestly, I haven't gotten back around to it, but eventually I'm going to play with that same series and I have a bunch more plexi cut for that and frames. And I'm going to take all of those pieces apart and then make new things that can float in there. And so the idea is that that series actually is always evolving. Mm-hmm. And the compositions that you see on the website happened to be what existed for that show. So I had a show with a friend of mine in Istanbul and uh, then showed them back here in the United States. For those shows, what you see on the website is what they were. But going forward, each of those layers is going to be pulled back out and might go back behind something from another piece, or I might create a new layer and put that back in there. And then that gets into that idea of time, layers, revealing, concealing, and changing over time and how things sort of evolve and combine and recombine, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think oddly enough, you know, I start seeing other bodies of work and other bodies of work. I mean, maybe that's not odd, you know, it's uh, <laughs> given yep. the given the circumstances and the way that you're working. And so I'm looking at this, uh, the persistence of ruin number six, and mm-hmm. I start seeing this like towering floral, 
you know, form. Yep. And again, one of the things that I really love about this work too is that you kind of have like a slightly warm and cool kind of effect relative yep. to the that's, layering that's so that you could have that. Good old Doug color. <laughs> but then, you know, when I think about that, it's quite different from, you know, some other recent drawings like the, the houseplant series, which, mm-hmm. you know, obviously has very recognizable <laughs> 1970s, uh, maybe architecture, but it has those flower elements. And again, it's just like an entirely different format where, you know, the composition is kind of, you know, framed by this, you know, field of paper instead of, you know, kind of filling out to the edges, but maybe mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that, that series and maybe, I guess that relationship between the structure and then these floral forms, because I think that's something that's common between the two two different series, even if they look a bit different. Yeah, I mean, the basic commonality, not all of the persistence of ruin had like an organic form coupled with an uh, architectural form, but you're right in that it does start to show up in that earlier series. And then when I got into the, the house plants, and obviously it's a pun, you know, it's a house, it's a plant, it's a house plant. Mm-hmm. But the the main impulse and and sort of starting point catalyst for those works were I was traveling in Indonesia. It might've been that I was in Bali at the time. And there was a house, an Indonesian style house, but it was all all it was, was the walls and the, the roof was gone. And there were just these gigantic ferns and palm trees and things coming up out of banana plants, coming up out of the, out of that house form. And I was just in a car riding from one place to another, and I didn't even have time to take a photo of it. But it stuck because I thought, aha, that's a version of what I'm talking about. It's the thing that's lived past its original purpose, or maybe it never even got to its original purpose. Maybe the structure was abandoned. And then, you know, if you travel to things that are closer to the equator, you realize that nature and things that grow are a major problem for those of us who are human and trying to impose our will on the world. So up here in the Mountain West, things grow very slowly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have a se- growing season of a week. In you know, in Bali, you look you look one direction and you look back, and the plant that you were looking at is now like a foot taller. Mm-hmm. So, and it kind of reminds me. This is a tangential thing, but it reminds me of Garcia Marquez and Love in the Time of Cholera and Hundred Years of Solitude. And he always talked about that sort of the insistence of nature to just take over and and wipe everything clean. Mm -hmm. So I saw that image as we were driving along. And then I thought, well, if I try to draw that, that's not going to really, I needed something, I needed it to relate back to my world in a way that, you know, looking at my work, I really don't tend to bring in that sort of like, like you said, 1970s, 1980s, like architectural format. Mm -hmm. But the neighborhood I live in looks a lot like the neighborhood I grew up in now. And those houses are just from around here. They're just like two blocks away. And the idea of taking something that looks current and suburban, but then creating a moment where it is obviously not capable to be lived in anymore, but it's sort of serving a purpose. It's, it's, become something new and it's become a home for those floral forms and and natural forms that are growing out of it. And one of the interesting things that I got in response to these online somewhere, Facebook or Instagram or somewhere, was that somebody asked me if they could share one of these images with a friend of theirs. And I said, sure, I mean, it's digital, you can do whatever you want, it's very kind. But she was thinking like, well, they just lost their house in a tornado. And I thought that this would be like a positive sort of image for them. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> and then I I had another person look at them and go, 
that's just disgusting and, and awful and and it's so dark and i was like oh that's interesting too <laughs> and so i'm not saying i'm creating some sort of litmus test or rorschach for people to look at but one person can look at this and it's a symbol of rebirth and one person can look at this and it's a symbol of destruction and ruin and i think it's all in there and whether i intended it or not of course that's a whole other thing of course i did i meant all of that <laughs> but it's interesting to create that sort of rich space where you're playing with these sort of iconic forms in a sense and then people can start to see a range of they can interpret change in a in a variety of ways kind of bringing their luggage again sort of up to that mirror and having something reflected back on them and it's interesting to me that it had such a broad interpretation well, and that's one of the things that's, I guess, really interested to me about just viewing art is that you really kind of bring, you know, your yourself to it. You know, you're going to see one thing that maybe the artist didn't intend or wasn't even interested in. So, you know, even in doing this podcast, that's one thing that's really been eye opening for me is that I try to be really open minded mm-hmm. relative to that, you know. And again, because I can look at work like, uh, again, the, there's one that I was that I've been looking at here is uh, house plant number four. And mm-hmm. I start seeing this pile of bricks which make me think about the passage of time and all these ancient cities that are in ruins kind of giving way to, you know, what we have now and how that's maybe eventually going to be, you know, something else, you know, or mm-hmm. who knows we were going to get hit by an asteroid. Um, they kind of miss every couple of years. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's kind of like inevitable, you know, like we're going to have that dust cloud. It's going to take everything out and then you're going to, you know, have a whole uh, neighborhood with a, uh, maybe big trees growing through all these, uh, these abandoned homes and, you know, a lost civilization, if you will. So again, to me, it, it just kind of gives a lot for the viewer to think about relative to all of that. Yeah. And there, there's just to add to that, there's, I mean, I don't try to bring this up like as my first statement about my work, because it just sounds like way too like dorkily deep and <laughs> if not pretentious, but I mean, I, I, I do think a lot about deep time and like where we are in the context of things. So I'm here in terms of time in a very short blip. And there was a lot before me and there's going to be a lot after me. And then you can also look at it in terms of our tiny blue dot, as Carl Sagan used to say about the earth floating through this mass, you know, just gigantic region of space and in the universe. So that sort of contextualization of like my own desires and fears is is really important to me and i do try to bring that either literally or in sort of the back of my mind into the work that i'm doing like another way to think about it is i'm i'm constantly amazed at how self-important we are as humans mm-hmm. and how um the hubris of what we want and what we think is going to happen and like there's going to i'm all of us this is going to be the dark part of the podcast but all of <laughs> us who are here now are going to be gone and the we that we thought was so important is going to look exactly like the people that i didn't know who built anchor Wat, and i walked through it mm-hmm. they had a civilization it was gigantic it was better than most in that time period. And they were able to harness all kinds of energy and waterworks. And it was, it flourished and it was a kingdom and it was amazing. Uh, yeah, they're gone. And for what reason? I mean, there's multiple things. It could have been an environment. It could have been political. It could have been all kinds of things, climate. But if I look at things in that way, all of a sudden what's happening right now seems to be a little bit more manageable for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not that because it doesn't matter, and I know this is the only piece of wisdom I think I've come up with my entire life, in that 
everything is simultaneously the most important thing and not important at all. And somehow if I can live in the space between those two things and, and be okay with that, the ambivalence of that or the ambiguity of that, then it's okay. Like, obviously I need to teach my classes. It's the most important thing ever, but you know, also in the scheme of things, it's not that important at all. So somehow that's in there and that's in also what I'm trying to draw and, and create too. Though it's way easier to draw that to me than it is to try to explain it like right now. Well, one correction on that is the United States is the greatest country that's ever been known and realized. So we'll never have any kind of slip. Um, you no, know. It'll, yeah, it's, we, we, we will be just like Rome. No, wait, not at all like Rome. <laughs> we'll be just like uh, the British Empire. No, not at all like the British Empire. Yeah, so. Right, right. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting that you, you know, talk about these ideas and it makes me, you know, want to talk to you a little bit about this. Is it Styropolis? It's a yes. massive, uh, I guess, installation made out of uh, recycled styrofoam pieces, essentially. Maybe tell us a little bit about this because I think that's almost interesting too because you're like literally building you know, this massive, almost like set piece to be able to kind of, I guess, work from as well. Yep. So I, I had the idea of trying to build something like that for years. And it wasn't until I was on sabbatical 2015 that I sort of gave myself permission to stop doing the other stuff that I was doing, the other drawings. And, you know, I, I'd always like taken the styrofoam that we get in packing materials that goes around our TV or whatever you know, in the process of trying to figure out what the hell to do with it, you break it in half and you go that. And to me again, so the, the, the thing that's whole looks a little bit less interesting. The thing that's broken becomes more interesting. And then I just was like, well, that looks just like a ruin. And so that idea had percolated for years. And then I finally, I had space in my life and in my studio to start that. And it, it starts modest and small, you know, just a few inches tall. And then, you know, if you go to my website, you'll see that it basically takes over like half the studio. The The fun thing was I had no purpose in doing it. I wasn't going to make it into a stop action movie. I wasn't going to draw from it. I wasn't going to photograph it. I just wanted to make it. And part of that was bringing the experience of sitting in and being near ruins, which I've always enjoyed, you know, in, in Turkey and in Italy and in Cambodia and in Indonesia, et cetera, Japan. I've always ex enjoyed that sort of silence that happens in those spaces that are in between their two purposes. And I wanted that. I wanted to make that happen. So I started building it and it just kept growing and I kept working on it for years. It's been going now for five years. Eventually out of that, out of the play, which I think is an incredibly important studio practice component, I started to draw it. I started to photograph it. I did stereoscopic photographs of it so that people could experience it in three dimensions because mm -hmm. uh, I'm not probably going to move the stupid thing. <laughs> I don't even know how to. <laughs> and I don't really want to put it in the time right now. So I've had offers to like put it into a show and I'm like, oh, that would be weeks. Okay, <laughs> fine, fine, fine. So I thought, oh, this is, I'll do stereoscopic photographs. And that got me into learning how that works. And, and researching it and learning how to take those photographs and how to print them out properly and how to have get viewers for them. In one exhibition, I had a series of, of drawings of Styropolis, but also stereoscopic images that you could look at so you could experience that. My joke is that it's always twilight at Styropolis because that's the most beautiful light and I'm always lighting it from the side. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 
as opposed to real life where like you have twilight and then you're like, oh, there it goes. Right. <laughs> it's always sunset or sunrise at Styropolis and it always looks fantastic. So I can light it. I can play with it. I started to do like little movies with it and music, which never turned into an exhibition, but I have them. And then the another level of sort of drawing and photography that happened with it was I started projecting onto Styropolis actual real ruins. So things that I experienced in Cambodia or in Turkey are projected onto Styropolis. Or I was even taking like Bruegel's Tower of Babel and projecting that onto Styropolis. So you have, and I'm, it's not a huge component of my conceptual conversation, but obviously for quite a few years ago, or quite a few years now, we've been living with the idea of what's fake and what's real. And that's only getting more problematic. Mm -hmm. So Styropolis isn't real, but I can make it look real. I can, if I photograph it right, it looks like a real ruin. And that's, you know, miniature artists do that all the time. So then you take a fake ruin and you project a real situation on top of it. And now then you take a photograph of it that collapses all of that back into a flat form. And now you can't actually tell what's real and what's not real. And so that act of sort of fabrication is maybe like a new layer or nuance in my thought. But I, I was probably just getting to the point where all of that was going to maybe create a whole new series and then COVID hit. And mm -hmm. I was like, or later, we could do this <laughs> later. And so I think once I get back into my studio on a regular basis and I can be teaching in, or building on a regular basis and in a more comfortable space, I'll probably try to come back to that and figure out what that means. Well, it's interesting to hear you talk about all this because one of the things that it, you know reminds me of honestly is like the same process of you know working through a, a piece you know and as we were both discussing earlier, we're kind of in that end stage of the semester. We're talking to students, trying to get an idea of what what it is that they're doing, and there's also just like this reality where you have to kind of do something to to make another choice, you know, like you can't just sit and wait things out to kind of happen. And so it's interesting to think about how you've, you know, take an inventory of all these different experiences, you know, to kind of allow this ebb and flow between different, different pieces and different mm -hmm. ways of working and, and different setups. But again, it's like, it's like this strangely rich world uh, that's, you know, got some similarities to it, almost like a multiverse, you know, and then you're just going to step <laughs> into another one or something. Yeah. Well, and it's also, I mean, there are artists who are maybe more methodical than I am or, and I don't mean in the making of the piece, I mean in like how they, they move from one body of work to the next or how long they do a certain thing. Well, I have the luxury of teaching. So I teach full time. I have a great job. I have a good paycheck. So that then allows me a little bit of freedom, I think, creatively. Uh, so I don't have to like, I don't have a market <laughs> that I have right. to match or something like that. So I, my restlessness in my creative work is, it is born out of curiosity of like, I wonder if this would work. And so that's a lot of what happens is that, well, I wonder if I could do that. And then I'll try that. And then I'm wondering if this is going to work. Speaking of sort of adapting to like COVID times, whenever I couldn't go travel this year, obviously, because of the pandemic, you know, it's obviously kind of down like, okay, well, that's going to ruin a major part of my fun and inspiration. But what I ended up doing was getting on Google Street View and I went back to places that I'd been, like Peru and Cambodia and Turkey and, and et cetera. And I walked down the streets that I'd walked down before. And then 
when I was in Peru and I was in Cusco, it rained a lot and it was kind of a crappy thing. And I was sick and my wife was a little bit sick. And so we just, you know, we went out for a little bit and then we come back to the hotel a lot. But I was really looking forward to drawing these beautiful alleys in Cusco. So I went back on Google Street View and I found a nice view. And so I did like five or six drawings at the like at the beginning of the pandemic that were all virtual on location, so to speak, drawings of places that I'd been to and that I recognized, but I hadn't had the time or the ability to do a drawing there that I wanted. And so I did several of those and I would post them, you know, to Instagram and Facebook with the Google coordinates so that in theory, anybody could go there on Google Street View and wander around and look at what I was, so to speak. And there's something highly weird and conceptual about that. <laughs> and then it was it was good for the moment. I don't think I want to do a ton of that, but it was it was interesting. And it was a fun, weird adaptation that fit within all of the other things that I had been doing, weirdly. Yeah. Well again, it's it's interesting to think about how especially this year everybody's studio practice is so shifted or, you know, again, people are kind of retreating into it or <laughs> like you said, kind of almost maybe taking a break from it to kind of get a step mm -hmm. back from their work. I know that, you know, things are going to get better tomorrow, but, uh, <laughs> you know, what, Someday. what, what types of plans do you have coming up in, in terms of, you know, the next year? Are, are you kind of content to be kind of working? Do you have shows that you're working towards or anything like that? Yeah. And again, I sort of have the fortunate Nature. I mean, I'm I'm a full professor now, and I have don't have to run through too many more academic hoops in that way. So I don't feel an outward pressure necessarily to like do things for those reasons, uh, which is really nice. I think it's one of the advantages of being at this level of academic success or whatever. So right now, I don't really have like any big plans for exhibitions because the pandemic just threw me for a loop. Like all of those. I mean, I had, I had started a whole new body of work, which we haven't even talked about, which has <laughs> got layers to it and it's got architecture in it, of course. But I'd started like two of those pieces and I was planning on working on that in the summer. And then, you know, the, the pandemic was rather like moving to a new location, except for we never left our houses. And there's a quality of like when you move someplace new, you're, you're kind of learning who you are all over again. And the pandemic was that, but I never left my you know house. <laughs> and that that has taken a long time to percolate. So the the Google Street View drawings were a, were a a kind of band aid, you know, a little bit of a panacea to you know, okay, at least I'm drawing. This is fine. Mm -hmm. And 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 they're on location drawings, but I'm in my dining room, whatever. <laughs> So it it was it it felt a little melancholic. Let's just put it that way, like oh yeah okay I can still draw that I guess. And then you know side points I also have like a lot of academic stuff that I'm doing even over the summer we're seeking accreditation for our department these days, <sighs> and I'm the head of that committee of course. And mm -hmm. that you know that was my summer. So in that way that I learned how to not make work for a few years when I was in Kansas city, I've done that at least three or four times now while I've been a professor at Wyoming where I'll just like not know what to do next. And I'm just like, that's fine. It'll come back. And I let that happen again for the pandemic. Cause it feel like the, felt like the perfect time just to go like, whatever, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm just going to enjoy the fact that I'm happy and healthy and safe. And we'll just go with that for a baseline. And then these days, what's been happening is in order to kind of like stave off the the monotony of being, you know, in a quarantine pandemic world, my wife and I have been hiking 
as much as we can in the beautiful mountain west uh, around Laramie and taking photographs just like I do when I travel. And then recently what I've been doing, and that works all on Instagram, I haven't had time to even load it on the website. I've been doing drawings of fallen trees and uh, fallen branches and everything like on around these trails that we go hiking on. And right now that's just been that initial sort of state of getting going. And, you know, I just was drawn to them, no pun intended. And I found those images interesting, but now that I'm building them and I'm drawing them and I'm seeing that same sort of content when we go back out and hike. Now they're beginning to like connect up again in 2020 hindsight, everything else. There's natural forms, there's entanglement, there's complexity, structure, they're kind of natural ruin. So the tree was upright and it had one life and now it's laying down and it's going to serve a different purpose and it's going to decompose. So it's interesting how all of those same things are still kind of in there without me even consciously wanting to like, like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm right. going to try to, I'm going to try to tick off all of those boxes. And of course, if you do that, it looks like crap. You know, like if it's, it's going to look like the star Wars movies lately, I, I'm going to have all of the, <laughs> all of the things that are important to star Wars. And you end up with rise of Skywalker, which has right. technically everything ticked off. Right. <laughs> just right, does right. not work. And so it was odd to just go like, I want to draw that. That was the only impulse. I just, I wanted to draw those things. And then inside of it, I start to see the same stuff, you know, the same, same kind of questions and, and reflections and all of that stuff kind of in those pieces. So right now I'm just sort of in the mode of trying to knock out a few of those every so often. And so they kind of build up into a body of work and then we'll see where it goes. Excellent. Excellent. And I guess just to kind of remind everybody, where are the best places to, to follow your work? You just mentioned Instagram. I'm, I'm seeing all sorts of posts there now. So that's a great place for people. On Instagram is Doug Russell Art altogether. And then, you know, you can find me, I think, under the same tag or whatever name on Facebook. I have an artist page. I think it's also Doug Russell Art. And then one thing, just really tangentially, is that I also, when I go out traveling and, and hiking and things, I record sound, uh, ambient sound, like maybe two to five minutes of sound in a digital uh, stereo recorder that I have. And then I post those to SoundCloud. And you can go there and find my sort of on location recordings. It might just be Doug Russell on SoundCloud. And I just have like short clips of ambient sound um, that are sort of a, another way to capture like the stereoscopic photographs and the on location drawings of trying to be a witness to place and and report on that place. And then that, you know, all the, I haven't figured out how the sound's gonna ever work into the actual studio pieces, <laughs> but it's it's another one of those threads that sits out there next to everything, like Styropolis did for a long time. It just sits there. And I'm enjoying it for what it is right now, but there could be a way in which it sort of comes back into maybe a more sculptural audio, sound sculpture sort of form in the studio and in the gallery. But so far, I have no idea. I'm still just collecting. <laughs> well, it, it's really interesting, you know, like, again, I know I described it earlier, so I hope that you don't hate this idea, but it really is to me like uh, your own multiverse, really, of these different explorations. Again, I feel like we just b barely got to scratch the surface, but thank you so much for taking the time to, to tell me all about it, talk about it, and everybody should definitely go and follow you on Instagram and, and check out all your work. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a really fun and interesting conversation. And in that funny way, whenever people ask you what you're trying to do, 
the idea of trying to express it and put it all into words and make it make sense that's been really helpful for me too because <laughs> <laughs> when you're in the studio working none of this makes as much sense as it just did Thanks so much to Doug Russell for joining me. You want to check out his work at russellfineart.com and be sure to follow on Instagram to see some of those recent drawings, Doug Russell Art. If you like this interview, go to studiobreak.com and check out some of the ones that you missed. Again, each of our posts have images of the artist's artwork and links to their website so you can find out more info. You can listen right in the default player or just click those links and subscribe to the podcast so you've always got a studio companion and something to kick your brain around while you're working in the studio and obviously if you enjoy the podcast please help others find it by spreading the word you can do that very easily via social media so be sure and like our facebook page you can find us on twitter at studio break and of course on instagram be sure to follow studio underscore break you can even see some of the recent 2020 pro competition winners juried this last year by Liz Tran, who's a fantastic Seattle artist. So once again, go to Instagram, check out some of those posts. Music for today's episode is Remedial Indie Band, which features Ben Cohan on drums, myself on guitar, newly renamed for 2021. We talked a bit about this on a podcast from the end of last year with Kate Kaminsky, John Reddington, and Ben Cohan. We talk all about our bonding over the pandemic and making work, so check that out. If you missed it, we did have a interview to wrap 2020 with Jen Small, so check that out and listen if you haven't. If you'd like to see some of my paintings, head on over to davidlinaway.com. Be sure to follow me and find me. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at David Linaway, so be sure to follow there. And we did it. We wrapped our first episode of 2021. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did, and I wish you a very productive 2021. Of course, making lots of great work in the studio while you're listening to Studio Break. So thanks for listening. We'll talk to you real soon.